BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Before we jump into it, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to everyone who's shared the episodes, commented on our posts. We really appreciate you guys listening, and your support means a lot to us, and thank you. Yes, thank you. Let's get into it. This is another fangirl one for me. You know how I love those. We have Derek, who is the co-host of the true crime podcast, Crime Weekly. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. But Derek was formerly a police officer and worked as an undercover agent in the drug, I guess, what do you call it? Drug field? Drug arena? Narcotic. So we're going to talk to him today about being an undercover officer and what that's like. That's cool. Right? I'm pretty excited. Yeah. I feel like that's another make-believe job, right? Totally. You don't really ever know anybody who actually does that, and the only time you've ever seen that is on movies or TV. Totally. I'm excited to jump into the nitty-gritty of what that actually means, because I'm picturing a clean-cut person who gets lip piercings and tattoos and yeah goes by the name of like slim you know slim rat or something <laughs> just gonna say you slim know? shady yeah I was gonna say slim shady <laughs> but I can't because you know Eminem which I love by the way yeah but you know or like Breaking Bad and uh god what's his sweet little little buddy's name um what's his buddy's name Nikki I know you know it I know it and it's literally on the top of my head and I can't think of it what is it it's an animal right oh my god this is killing me badger badger like, yes. Yeah, like selling people your badger or skinny P. Maybe he's skinny Derek. Yeah, I don't know. This is an interesting one because this one always fascinates me. And I'm glad we're talking to someone that does this because it really is really interesting to me, this type of job. How do you even get into that? Ugh. I'd be stressed out all the time. So I don't, yeah. Yeah, like how do you do that? It's such a weird and fascinating world. I'm super excited to talk to him about it. Let's get him on. Sounds good. 
Hey, Derek, how are you? I'm good. I'm super, super excited to talk to you. I love your podcast. I'll just tell you again. It's one of my favorites. I just finished the Casey Anthony one, and I just finished the Gabby Petito one. I just love it. You guys do such a phenomenal job. Oh, man, you guys... Thank you. You picked two long ones. Two long I, lo- series, I right? love the long ones. I'm such a fan of the multiple parter ones. So yeah, it's, it's it's different. Not a lot of people do it, which is why we do. You know, yeah. we know that normally it's 45 minutes to an hour for a podcast, which is kind of digestible. But there is that group of people who love long form content, and that's kind of where it, that's where our bread and butter. Is. Yeah, I love it. I just feel like it's hard to just cut a case down to 45, 30 minutes, and so I just I appreciate especially when the like, two of you. Yeah, yeah, it takes a lot. So anyways, I just want to tell you, I love that. We'll (laughs) just jump right into this. I would love to talk to you because you reference it a lot on your show about being an undercover police officer. How did you get Mm -hmm. into doing undercover work? Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of by accident. It was not the plan. So I became a police officer at 20 years old. Only on for about maybe five or six months. It was my 21st birthday and I'm out having my first legal bear. And I get a call directly from the chief the next morning. Um, so I go out, I have my first beer, go to my friend's place. We're hanging out at you know, his spot. We end up at a hotel. I wake up, a little hungover, nothing too crazy. And I get a call from the chief. By the way, getting a call from the chief when you're a rookie, not very common. So obviously, I, so- I sobered up very quickly. He says, listen, I need to talk to you. We have this case at this college where they might be selling drugs and date rape pills. And frankly, they're looking for someone who has a very young face and would be able to blend in with the students. They don't have anybody that fits that description. And from your academy, thought of you, would you be interested? Obviously, I'm all in, right? So I went out there to make a long story short, did my first undercover case. We found my guy who was selling the drugs. We ended up arresting 11 different people that were involved with this organization and expanded outside the school. And uh, I got hooked. Unfortunately, I had to go back to patrol because that's where you earn your, you know, your stripes. But I was still doing work like that throughout the years until I was promoted full-time detective narcotics. And then when I was in full-time detective narcotics, I did probably another 50, 60 undercover missions for different departments, agencies, both federal and local where we would do different things and I would kind of play up my age and play up my looks and do what I could to kind of blend in with the people. Okay. So my first question is, you get assigned to go onto this college campus. How much information do you have? Because I guess the first step is to build your own backstory of who you are on campus, right? So walk us through the process. How does that work? It varies. Sometimes you go in there cold turkey where you you literally have no inclination as to what or who's doing it it's just you know rumors that there's stuff going on in there they want you to try to find out who it is in this particular case what had happened was they had arrested another student and they found him with multiple pills that were exactly what they were looking for so they flipped them they basically said hey listen you know you can either go down for this or you can introduce one of our undercovers into your friend group and try to give them direction. So he was able to point me in the direction of who was selling the drugs, where they were selling it, and what time they were selling it. So when I went into the dorms, I had a specific target in mind, someone who I was under the impression was the main person selling the drugs. And I found ways to befriend that person over a couple of days and 
eventually what happened was we, we got cool. I was in his room and he, we were playing a video game. He basically said, hey, you want to see something? You want to know why I never get caught? And he spun around a PlayStation and the back of the PlayStation that was hollowed out and the drugs were inside the PlayStation. So I said, yeah, man, that's a really good spot. <laughs> and obviously <laughs> a couple of days later, we went in and there the drugs were. So yeah, ultimately it depends on how you're getting introduced to it. There were times where I would go into an area and, you know, a club or a bar and just start sitting there having drinks, fraternizing with people. And I would just kind of have to try and identify the person who was selling the narcotics on my own. And then some cases you go in there with a specific person in mind where they're making an actual introduction into the target of the operation. That's crazy. It reminds me of that Channing Tatum movie. And what is that? 21 Jump Street or 22 Jump Street? 21 Jump Street. Yeah, that was, my, <laughs> that was actually my nickname. That was actually my nickname on the job because I looked so young. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, because that's what I'm picturing is like it, it, the whole thing. That's exactly when you're telling that story. I'm like, this sounds like 21 Jump Street. That's crazy. Yeah, that was basically me. How hard is that to gain their trust? You know, I've always had a natural ability to kind of blend in with other people, to, you know, to find commonalities with people of all different backgrounds. That's kind of always been my thing. It started as a kid growing up in a very eclectic city with a lot of different types of people. And it kind of just expanded. And when you go into these situations, you get a pretty good read on people if it's what you do. Like, I know what they're like. They're just like the motivations are. And you, you hit them with a couple of different conversations. You want to let them do most of the talking. And by just asking questions and really listening to what they have to say, you can develop a pretty quick profile on them as far as like, hey, this is someone who likes to be the alpha or this is someone who um, is looking for acknowledgement from others. There's different things you can go up and you play off that. I was on a show before called Big Brother. And believe it or not, the reason why I was so successful on that show is because it's a lot of the same thing where you're going in there, you're trying to find out what people's motivations are, find out what common interests you have, and then use those to build a relationship as quick as possible. Because ultimately, when you go into these investigations, you don't go up to the person and say, hey, can I buy some drugs from you? You want to start with things like, you know, what are they, what's their favorite sports team? What do they like to eat? Where do they like to hang out? You want to try to build a real relationship so it lets their guard down. And then you can start asking the questions that actually matter to you. How much of yourself do you keep in, I don't know if you call it a character or a cover. I was thinking about on one of your episodes in your podcast, you had a reference that you usually use your first name so you don't, don't get hung up, you know, if you had told them your name was James or something and they're calling your name and you don't yep. respond. So how much of yourself do you keep in the details of what you tell people? Yeah, honestly, a lot. I mean, before I had kids and stuff, it was very basic. You know, I was only 24, 25 years old. So a lot of the things that I was doing in my personal life, legally, of course, was going out with these individuals as well. Because what people think is like, you know, when you have someone who's selling drugs or carrying out some form of illegal activity, they're not sitting there doing that all the time. It's not like the movies. For the most part, they're watching sports. They're hanging out at restaurants. They're hanging out with family and friends. And they have a lot of the same problems and the same pleasures as you. You know, criminals aren't these like outlier people where they're just literally sitting in their villain office plotting how they're going to do something evil tomorrow. For the most part, a lot of the times, these individuals are doing this because of one reason or another, but a lot of the times it's because they need the money, right? They're trying to get money for whatever reason. So you can relate to them on a lot of ways. 
So for me, when I went into these operations, a lot of myself was the same. Like you said, I always kept my same first name. I always told the truth about my favorite sports teams, what I like doing, my favorite restaurants, my favorite movies. Why lie about those things? They're not going to be able to trip you up on it later if you're telling the truth. When you start to create this whole new persona and just everything you're saying is off the cuff and a complete outright lie, you're bound to get caught, especially if the operation goes on for multiple weeks. So for me, yeah. unless it's something that could tie it back to like my personal life, like my wife or anything like that, I always kept it in because I wasn't concerned about them coming after me afterwards for things like my favorite team was the Red Sox, you know? So those are information you can give and it's not really going to hurt the case, but it is going to strengthen your conversation because you're coming from a place of authenticity. What do these people have, think like, you do for a living? Because I feel like that's a very common question to be like, so where do you work? Yeah. So for me, when I was undercover, a lot of the time, I'm giving away the tricks of the trade here, but a lot of the times I would say I was in construction because that's mm. kind of like a, a job where and I never said I worked for a big company. It was always like, you know, Joe's handy shop out of, you know, Crankton, Rhode Island or whatever. And I'm, I'm just a journeyman where I would bring up lumber, paint, just out of that job. And sometimes I would even dip my hands in like paint, but then I would wash it off. So I'd get a little bit in my nails, stuff like that. Smart. Yeah. So you'd have signs that you work because a lot of the times you don't want to go into this thing and be like, hey, yeah, I was painting all day. And you look like you just left the office. One of those things where you dress the part, you look the part. And honestly, there's not a lot of things in painting that they could ask you that would trip you up. Where it's like, oh, well, what type of paint do you use for this wall? You know, it's pretty basic. Mm -hmm. Water-based, oil-based, use a, you know, cut brush. Professionals don't use tape. All the the basic stuff that you can get away with. And you're not tied down anywhere because if you're working construction or painting, you're moving. So it's not like they could be like, oh, I stopped by your work and you weren't there, you know? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Exactly. If it was a bigger operation where we felt like they were going to vet my occupation, my criminal history, whatever, obviously we spend a lot more time developing that character, that person, so that when they do look into it, I have a background. I mean, we would go to the length of, you know, saying I work at a supplement store, making sure that the business owner there was in on it and would verify if somebody called and said, hey, is Derek working today? He would say, no, nah, he's off. That was very rare, but there were occasions where we were dealing with higher profile targets that would vet who you were before carrying out any type of transaction with you. And in those cases, we always made sure that if they searched me, they would see that I had a criminal record. They would see whatever I had told them, they would verify that, including my place of work. How long is an undercover investigation for you? Is it a week, months? It can go on. I mean, I will say this. I never had a situation where I was undercover consistently 24 hours around the clock for months. But there were times where I was buying drugs from a specific person over a period of four or five months, but I was going home at the end of the day. I would just meet up with them, make the buy, you know, say hello, have a drink, and then I would go on with my day. But in the many cases when you're trying to establish not only who the target is. So, for example, you'll have this person when it's a bigger operation where they may have a money house, they may have a drug house, they may have multiple properties, they may have multiple vehicles. So when you're building the case, you want to identify where the money's being stored, where the drugs are being stored, what vehicles they're using to transport those drugs, what houses they're keeping them in. Because when you, when you actually execute a search warrant, you'll seize all those items. You want to hit all those houses and you want to seize all those items because they were used in the process of a criminal act activity. So you don't usually get that off the first operation. So what we'll have is, hey, 
come meet me. I want to buy some drugs. He'll show up in a certain car. They'll follow that car afterwards, see where it goes, see where he goes to drop off the money, where he goes to pick up the drugs. And they create this narrative that's eventually presented to a judge. And that's how we're able to get search warrants for multiple properties, multiple vehicles. That's how you're able to seize those assets by showing a pattern of this individual continuously using those items or using those houses to facilitate his criminal activity. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like the movies. I'll say that. Like, they don't just say, hey, go out there, buy drugs, and we'll see you in a couple months. Um, even on every operation you go on, 99% of the time, I had a vehicle or multiple individuals in the area that were detectives, and they're your eyes. They're following you. They're making sure you're protected. They're making sure they know where you are. They're making sure they know what vehicles you're in. If something looks shady or it seems like you've been exposed, they'll hop in and, you know, come to help you out. So it's definitely not like The Departed or anything like that where, I know, I'm thinking you know, you're that. Leo DiCaprio, you're <laughs> living in an apartment. I mean, listen, I will say this. Those things do happen. Um, absolutely, those things happen where people are undercover for years, you know, whether it's biker gangs or high-level cartel things or the mafia. I... Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to slice it, I never personally did anything to that level. Yeah, I'm picturing like training day too, like very stressful. <laughs> yeah, training day was honestly not obviously the plot of that movie, but that was more in line what we did where you're doing undercover stuff where it's like hand-to-hand -hand transactions on the spot, you know, where you're out there doing it. That is more in line with how it kind of is in a narcotics unit where everybody could be an undercover that day, just depending on who you're going after and who they feel in the narcotics unit would fit that role the best. That's kind of what we did. But for these big operations where we're working with the DEA or the FBI, most of the time they used agents from within their organization. And when they did, you never saw those people. They're so deep undercover and they have such a profile that they've built. They talk to one person and one person only. And, and, and that's it because obviously their life is in danger if they get exposed. You're not worried about that. Like after the case is done, like the guy you're playing PlayStation with, and then you see him in court and are they just so low level that you're not too worried about it? Or is there still a sense of worry? I mean, there's always a risk. It's part of the reason I got out of narcotics was because I had a daughter. Um, it's always a risk. I did have one operation where it wasn't even me being undercover, but I was the sergeant of the narcotics unit. So after we made multiple buys, we would hit the house, right? And it would be me and my team that would do it. I worked in a small city, so it got around to the other criminals that Derek and his squad were cleaning things up. And obviously that pisses some people off. So there was a point where I came into work and the chief had asked me to come to his office. And when I walked in, it was my captain, my lieutenant, and they had this really somber look on their face. And I said, what's up? And they said, well, we just received a call from the prison. There's an individual there right now who apparently knows you and you helped him out in the past. And he told a correctional officer to get the message to you that there was an individual in his cell that was planning on killing you with his counterparts when he gets out. And essentially, they knew where I lived. They knew there was a river behind my house. They had already bought the guns and they had hit him in a river behind the house. And they were going to shoot me when I came outside or whatever to, you know, cut the grass or something. So... Long story short, got to that person. Luckily, because of this information, the FBI did get involved. State police got involved. They were able to squash it. Obviously, nothing happened. That was my biggest scare. But yeah, and, and I say low level, it doesn't take much for someone to grab a gun and shoot you, you know? So it's yeah. always a concern, especially in Rhode Island, where I was working. It's a small state. But when I was doing it, I was young, and I didn't really have a lot to lose. I know that sounds kind of sad, but... 
you know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have other people that I cared about more than myself. So that's the type of person you want for those roles. But as I got older, as I got married, as I had kids, that changes and you kind of change your priorities. But it's always a concern, for sure. I was always concerned about going to the movie theater or going to a restaurant and seeing someone that I had did an undercover operation against. And, and now they're out and they still have some ill will towards me and me being out on a date or something like that and having to deal with that in that moment. So always a concern, but it's kind of part of the job when you say, hey, I'll do it. I have to ask, with the threat to your house, did you move or did you stay there? So at the time when it happened, they put me in like a witness protection type thing where I stayed at a rental for a couple months until the person who was in prison got out. But I didn't move permanently because it's a deeper story, but I was born and raised in the city where I worked. So I actually confronted this person who had put the hit out on me when he got out. And without getting into too many details, because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, him and I had a, a conversation about the situation, the way kids would have conversations about things where I grew up, if that makes sense, if you're sure. reading between the lines. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he knew who I was. I knew who he was. We had friends in common. He knew I was from the same streets that he was from. And I saw him in a CVS parking lot, coincidentally, knocked on the window, and him and I went behind the CVS and had a conversation. And after it, we shook hands, and that was the end of it. It was squashed. That's wild. Okay, so that just sparks another question in my head. When you do this undercover work, you're like literally doing it in the city that you live in. So you just kind of hope that you don't run into these people that you're buying drugs from, like you said, just in your normal life. You just kind of hope that the world kind of stays separate. Yeah, yeah, you do. Oh my God, that's so stressful. It is. It is stressful. And I will say I started doing that in the beginning, but I wasn't able to do my city for very long. It then kind of transcended to other cities. And that's kind of like the first one I did where a lot of the times, once you start to get known, you can only do it a couple of times before everyone on the street knows who you are. So what you would do is we have like these lease agreements where I'll go do undercover in a neighboring department and they'll allow one of their offices to come to undercover in our city in exchange. So it did happen a few times, but we tried, if it was going to be an ongoing investigation, we tried to get outside detectives to do it. If it was something where somebody just moved into the city, they set up shop on, you know, so street, we would send someone in there real quick to just knock on the door and see if they could get some coke or something like that or get some crack because we knew that this person wasn't familiar with the city. They were just moving in to set up shop. They're from Providence or a neighboring town or city. And so we do a knock and see if we can get in. And we didn't really worry about too much. But if it was going to be an ongoing investigation, we usually outsource that to make sure we had someone who they weren't going to be able to trace back to someone in the city. What is the job span for an undercover? Like some people, is it their whole career or is it a very short time? There's a difference between undercover and the special investigations or narcotics unit, right? Like you can be in the narcotics unit. You can be in special investigations. I know guys who've been in narcotics for 20 years. That's all they've done. They've done their the whole career. They're going to retire narcotics guys. They passed on promotions. They do whatever. Are they doing undercover work anymore? No, they ne never have done undercover work because of the way they look, right? But it's one of those things where as far as doing actual undercover work, I think it all depends on how deep you are. There are guys who will do federal level investigations where they might infiltrate a motorcycle club or something. That may be the only undercover work they ever do because after they do that, they can't do anything else. Their life is too in danger to do so. But then you have people 
who are doing more low level stuff that can do it for five, six years, as long as they're not doing the same areas and they're going to be perfectly fine. So it all depends on what you're doing, what type of operations you're conducting, what type of people you've put away that kind of dictates how long you could do it. But in my experience, I think it's safe to say four or five years was the average turnaround in, in my department for anybody who was doing actual undercover work. Yeah, because I would think that would be kind of hard to sustain. Yeah, you can't do it long term. Plus, you don't want a guy doing it too much because then they can forget what they're what they're actually there to do. You know, if you're hanging with criminals all day, you just kind of become the company you keep. I've seen that in movies too, where they just kind of <laughs> <they> flip. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. How many adjustments to your physical appearance do you make, Derek, when you do undercover work? Are you going as far as having fake tattoos? How much of you changes? I never did the fake tattoos, but I would do things like when I was in college, I wore earrings. When I became a police officer, I didn't. But I had them for so long before I became a police officer that I still had the holes. So yeah. there were situations where I would throw my earrings back in. I would grow out my facial hair, which was not something I had as a police officer. In patrol, I would grow out my, my actual hair, make it a lot longer, kind of have it, you know, shaggy or whatever. Just try to keep yourself away from the custom high and tight look that you usually see with a police officer as mm -hmm. much as possible. So I would do things like that, grow mustache, grow a beard from, from the beard that I can actually grow, which isn't a lot. Um, <laughs> grow, you know, grow out a, grow out a mohawk or a full hawk or whatever at the time, whatever was kind of trendy. And again, just try to blend in with the type of people that I'm dealing with so that when I go out there, I'm not have this military cut and I got, you know, shaved down, you know, perfectly clean shave where it's like they look at you and they're like, this dude's a cop. Okay, that leads me to my next question that I feel you see all the time depicted in movies and TVs where it's like, if I ask you directly, are you a cop, Derek? Do you have to disclose that? No, that's false. Okay. Yeah, that's 100% false. Okay, so how does that work? There's a word for it, like entrapment or something? Entrapment? Yeah. yeah. How does that work that you don't have well, to disclose yourself? Well, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, we're undercover for a reason. So if you're a criminal... Imagine if all you had to say was you're a cop. At the end of the day, we're not enticing you to sell us drugs. So entrapment yeah. is more along the lines where it's like I go up to you and I I try to convince you. Like I'm like, hey, we should go rob this bank. And I'm the one who initiates it. I'm like, we should go rob this bank. And you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm like, come on, you do it. I'll, you know, come with me. I'll be the lead. You just follow along. So we go rob this bank. And you're just basically following my lead. Now, you agreed to do it, but only because I pressured you and because I was asking you to do it. I was the one who initiated it. Well, yeah. after the robbery, I decide to tell you I'm undercover and I charge you with the robbery. Well, that's entrapment because I set you up. I, I incentivized you. I pressured you to do a criminal activity that you had no intentions on doing until I initiated it. Where with drug work, with drug activity, we're hearing through our intelligence that you're doing something. You're selling drugs or whatever it might be. And so I'm just integrating myself into what you're already doing. Whether it's me you're selling drugs to or the next guy, I'm not your only client. You're selling them to everyone. I'm just intercepting your daily activity. So again, if there was this loophole where all you had to do was ask the person to identify themselves as a police officer, well, we would never catch anyone, right? Obviously, yeah. so it kind of, it doesn't make a lot of sense. At the end of the day, as long as we're not the ones creating an environment where we're incentivizing you or enticing you to sell drugs, then it's not entrapment because whether we were there or not, you would still be doing that activity. We have situations where we do John's things, where we go after sex workers. 
they don't do that as much anymore, but there were situations where we had a really bad sex worker problem in our city. And one of the rules was if you drove up to a female or a male and initiated by saying, hey, I'll give you $20 for this. Well, you presented them with the exchange, mm -hmm. not the other way around. That's entrapment because okay. they may have no, had no intention on doing that, but because you proposed this idea to them, now they're now they're interested. So when we did those types of operations, you could drive up to someone, you could say, hey, how are you? Do you need a ride? Yeah, I need a ride. And then if they got in the car and said, okay, well, obviously you don't want a ride. This is my prices, this for this, this for this. Well, now they've initiated that conversation and therefore it's lawful. Gotcha, okay. Imagine if you could be going after the cartel and all they had to say was, are you a cop? And if you didn't admit it, the operation was therefore null and void. It makes sense. Yeah, no, I think there's some level of like common sense that comes into it as well. Now, I think where people do get confused is when you're in a uniform and you're conducting a traffic stop, you do have a responsibility based on policies and procedures in most departments to identify yourself because you're stopping a pedestrian for a traffic stop and they have a right to know who's stopping them and to ensure that you are an actual police officer, not some nut job who outfitted his car with lights and sirens and bought a uniform. That's a different situation and more for safety purposes to ensure that the person is interacting with an actual police officer. But when you're undercover, it's it's a different game. It's a different game. You've identified them. Now you guys arrested them, whatever. And then you go to court. Do you testify as like a witness? Yeah, or you're yeah if you have to, now you're, you're testifying as a police officer. But I will tell you, in my experience, I never had to really testify because... Once they find out who you are through their lawyers, when all the, the you know the discovery crap packages are presented, they know what they did with you, and they know what they sold to you, and and they know at that point it's in their best interest to take a plea deal, to take something because it's not secondhand knowledge at this point. They know the interactions they have with you, they know what they sold to you, and they know it's going to be your word against mine. And when I get up there and say what I bought from you in the days I bought it from you from, and how much, and all these things more than likely the jury's going to believe me. So they usually take a deal at that point because they realize they're kind of stuck at that point. The jig's up. Yeah. Do you really experience like a massive flip when somebody's arrested? They're willing to just completely rat everybody out or is it hard to extract information from them? Some are easier than others. You know, it's some, some act like real tough guys and then when they get in there, they're willing to roll right away. Some, they won't rat out a single person for freedom and a million dollars. They just won't do it. It's just their code. Um, yeah. and sometimes it depends on what you have on them. If you've only got something that's going to give them a misdemeanor at six months in prison, they're not going to roll on that. If they're looking at federal time with a minimum of 10 years or something, they might be more apt to provide information that helps your cause. It, it all depends on the person. I've seen people that we've given them some pretty good deals and instead they've chosen to go to prison for 10 years. Do you ever develop a relationship with the people that you're trying to bust that you kind of feel guilty at the end of the day that it's going to fall out the way that it's going to? All the time. All the time. Almost every time, to be honest with you. Because like I said earlier, most instances, these individuals are on hard time and they have families and they're risking their livelihood. They're risking their freedom to make money this certain way. Now, is, are there other ways to make money? Yeah, there are many people who are doing this because it's the easy route and it's quick money, right? Mm -hmm. So, but the bottom line is sometimes good people make bad decisions. It doesn't make them bad people. And so 
there are many instances where, you know, we end up going through with it and I have conversations with them afterwards and I stress to them that it was nothing personal and it's, it's just business. And that's why in that case that I was telling you about earlier, where a prisoner tipped off a correctional officer that they were going to conduct a hit on me, that was someone that I had arrested before, but it was the way that I treated him after the interaction that created that level of respect. And I, I'm fortunate enough to say that, you know, all the times I've been on television, all the shows that I've been on, I've never had someone come out and be like, oh, he was disrespectful or abusive to me because anybody I ever arrested, regardless of what they did, I, I will say I had a little problem with child molesters, obviously, but anything short of that, you know, I, I always treated them like a person and I made sure that they knew this wasn't something personal. It was our job and they knew what they were doing and we knew what we were doing and that was the risk that they took. And now they had to pay for it. And they usually, most of the time, they got it. They understood. How long would a person stay in jail, PlayStation guy? How long would his sentence be? In, in Rhode Island, probably didn't do a day in jail. Really? <laughs> probably got broken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the way the world works now, I mean, if they're first-time offenders and they're, you know, suspected of selling narcotics with a lawyer, it's probably, you know, a year and a year probation, depending on how much they were selling, depending on if it rises to the federal level where they have firearms around the drugs as well. There's all these different elements play a factor in what type of charges they're hit with. And like I said, if they're a studie with no criminal history, uh, never been in trouble before, they usually give them a plea deal where they're not doing any actual time. They get kept out of the school and things like that, but ultimately they're not going to prison for a first-time offense. Unless they're selling kilos of cocaine, that's different. In the drug case, it wasn't that. I don't even remember what it was, but we're talking ounces, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot. What do you think is the biggest misconception about undercover cops and the work that you do? It's funny that you mention it, but I would honestly say what you said. I get asked that question all the time as far as like, do you have to identify yourself as a police officer? If they feel that you are. That's a big yeah. misconception. But I think overall, it's not necessarily a misconception, but it's more so what we watch on TV and the movies. You think everything is like The Departed or Sicario or something like that. When, you know, when I say I did undercover work, there's a lot of guys who are just, you know, basic guys who have done hand-to-hand -hand transactions, undercover stings, things like that, where, you know, it's not that deep, it's not that involved. And so there's different levels to undercover work where not every person's going undercover against the, you know, the mafia for six years. You know, I'm not Donnie Brasco. <laughs> but I, I, so I guess it's a good thing, a misconception, because anytime I say oh, I did undercover work, that's what people think. And it automatically gives me credit. I don't deserve it. The other question I was thinking about is if someone listening to this and they're hearing you and they're like, I want to do that. I want to go undercover. What is the best way for them to get there? What's the best path? Well, I will say, obviously, you have to be some type of law enforcement. You probably want to go to the police academy, but there's no school or training you go to to be an undercover detective. Most of the time, just like in my case, they pick you. So there'll be a narcotics unit or a special investigations unit within your department. And they know who their up-and-coming guys are. And you, because of the way you look, may fit a certain profile. I'll tell you, a lot of the times when I was in narcotics and I was in charge, we were looking for female officers because a lot of drug dealers would be more apt to sell to them because their guards are down and the officer may be pretty and they want to sleep with them. So they're more willing to make mistakes and sell to them immediately when they should be vetting them. So it all depends on how you look, how you communicate, are you someone that's a natural speaker? And I think that comes a lot from your upbringing and who you are as a person. So unfortunately, I don't know if there's anything people can necessarily do 
But if you want any chance of being undercover, you definitely have to get into law enforcement, whether it's the federal level or the local level or the state level. And most of the time you got to earn your stripes by doing the patrol stuff because the best way to know how you'll interact with criminals is to be around them. And that's how superior officers can monitor you, you monitor your work and see what you do to see if you'd be right for a position like that. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. We won't take up any more of your afternoon, but it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you and learn about your job and just have a conversation with you. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you. My pleasure. You guys have a great weekend. Okay, so what did you think? Interesting, right? What a crazy, crazy job. Yeah, wild job. I don't think I could even last a a day, to be honest. I would be... scared. I just keep picturing again this episode. I'm sorry guys, it's really filled with TV and movie Isn't it? references. But who is the breaking bad guy? With the teeth, the silver teeth. Um, Tuco? Tuco. Thank you. Bring Tuco. And I don't want to have a beer with Tuco and talk to him about buying some uh some meth. Never. Never. I'd be so intimidated. No, that makes me a little nervous. Like my hands are sweaty right now and I'm not even doing it, but just thinking about it. Yeah, no. Yeah. And then you get the threat to your house from inside the jail. I want the guy just to be playing like PlayStation with. That's more my speed. No, I don't even want to do that. I don't even (laughs) want to do that because like you said, aren't you worried about the repercussion of that person being pissed when they get out of prison or whatever and then I feel like every time like you have a run-in with someone or like you're annoyed with someone don't you feel like you see them everywhere like I'm like oh they're at Target they pop up everywhere Starbucks yes I feel like it would be the same thing yeah so then I feel like you're running into Derek everywhere you go (laughs) yes I go to CVS to buy my like whatever and you're in the parking lot. Exactly. Know? Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Cool I job. Can't. I can't. Cool job. It takes a certain person and that person is not me. Yeah. No. I think I would just look really sweaty and nervous and I wouldn't even last a no. minute. No. No. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. It was great. I'm I'm so happy you joined us. Just to anyone who's listening, I did reference Derek's podcast. I highly, highly recommend it. If you love true crime, it's called Crime Weekly and it's fabulous. They also do YouTube videos where you can watch the episodes and they're super fascinating and they put tons and tons of content. They're thoroughly researched, amazing episodes. Crime Weekly, go give it a listen. But yeah, that's that's all I got for you. I feel stressed now. So I feel like we just have to call it a day. Yeah. Here's me signing off until next week. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.